The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center's lecture series is presented to a live audience and provides insight into leadership and warfighting from scholars and soldiers, helping us educate future military leaders and the public. The opinions and statements of the speakers featured on this presentation are not necessarily the views of the United States Army or the Army Heritage and Education Center. All right, good evening, everybody, and uh, welcome to the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center tonight, uh, Wednesday, October 18th, 2023. Um, on behalf of the AHEC, um, I'd like to welcome you to our Perspectives in Military History lecture tonight, Feeding Washington's Army, uh, based upon Dr. Ricardo Herrera's book of the same name. Uh, we welcome listeners from all over the world on our live stream. Thank you to those who are watching us out there online. Um, and please remember, uh, online, you can submit a question um, by typing it into the chat room at any time. Uh, one of our folks here will uh, round those questions up, and those will be presented in the Q&A period at the end of the lecture. Um, my name is Chris Kenner. I'm a librarian here at the Army Heritage Education Center in the Collections Division. Um, tonight, I have the great honor of representing the whole of USA HEC. Uh, and introduce tonight's speaker, uh, Dr. Ricardo Herrera, a Professor of Military History at the U.S. Army War College. He's a graduate of Marquette University and UCLA and has also served as an armor and cavalry officer in the U.S. Army. Prior to joining the War College, he was Professor of Military History at the School of Advanced Military Studies, uh, U.S. Army Command and General Staff College, Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, where he taught for over 10 years. Before joining SAMS, he spent six years teaching, leading, and designing staff rides at the Combat Studies Institute, U.S. Army Combined Arms Center, Fort Leavenworth. From 2002 to 2006, he was Assistant Professor of History at Mount Union College, uh, Alliance, Ohio, and Director of Honors from 2005 to 2006. Previously, he was Assistant Professor of History and Chair of the Department of History and Geography at Texas Lutheran University. He's the author of Feeding Washington's Army, Surviving the Valley Forge Winter of 1778, uh, published by the Uni University of North Carolina Press in 2021. For Liberty and the Republic, the American Citizen as Soldier, 1775 to 1861, uh, published by New York University Press. And the tentatively titled An American Soldier in Mexico, The Life and Letters of Edward Ashley Bowen Phelps, 1846 to 1848, published by the University Press of Kansas and multiple articles and chapters on U.S. military history. So with no further delay, please welcome Dr. Herrera, who will be speaking on one of the largest logistical operations undertaken by the Continental Army in the winter of 1778. Welcome. Thanks, Chris. <clears throat> well, thank, thank you all for being here. I didn't know that there would be so many people interested in the Continental Army going for takeout in the winter of 1778. Um, this book was a joy to research and write, um, lots of fun. Let me ask you, and this is for those of you who have not read the book or heard me speak before, what comes to mind were I to ask all of you about Valley Forge? What comes to mind? Just shout it out. Starvation. Starvation. What else? Winter. Cold. What else? Disease. Disease. You're correct, partly. Valley Forge is, and this came about to me while, um, when I built this as part of a staff ride that I did, I think in 2010, 
and there, there was a long process that actually led me to writing the book. Valley Forge is about politics and strategy. It's about more than making us collectively feel good as Americans. We often get the story of Valley Forge as a bunch of Continentals, ragged, starving, covered in snow. They're there to make us feel good as Americans because they're so noble. Some of you have seen the Bugs Bunny cartoon where an ice cream truck rolls in. Those of you who haven't, I strongly recommend you watch it. It's part of my education as a child. <laughs> and of course, what was the British Army doing? Well, it's doing what every good 18th century army is supposed to do in the winter. It's in winter quarters. It's drinking, it's whoring, and it's gambling. That's the trinity of every early modern army in winter quarters, be it British, French, Prussian, Austrian, you name it. The Swedes, the Russians, this is, the, this is a piece of it. Valley Forge, though, is really about location, location, location. Take a look at where it's, where it's located. You've got it right here. Philadelphia, about 17 miles to the southeast. And what this allows is the Continental Army to keep watch on the British Army. Before the, the Army even marched in there, the Continentals had fought a series of battles and successfully maintained the Army's record of losing fights. I've jokingly told my students over many years that there was no finer track team in North America than the Continental Army. When it began running, nobody was catching it. <laughs> the British had landed in August of 1777 down here at Head of Elk, today Elkton, Maryland. Marched their way up. They engaged the Continentals at Cooch's Bridge, sometimes known as uh, Ironbound Hill. Fought a skirmish there with the light infantry. The Americans withdrew. Pretty inconclusive. Washington's getting an idea of what his enemy is about. He wants to size him up, see what he's doing. The 11th of September, 1777, uh, here at Chad's Ford, the Battle of Brandywine. Washington gets his right flank turned. Now, this is kind of um, a bit of symmetrical flank turning, if you will, by the British Army. Sir William Howe had turned his left flank uh, on Long Island. So, you know, if the left has been turned, it's time to do the right. Why not? So Washington gets his right flank turned there. He had initially laughed off, literally, warnings about a British column approaching from his right. Once they got over uh, the Fords and appeared on Birmingham Hill, then he realized, oh, I guess they really are there. <clears throat> and there was some really solid fighting done by the Marylanders, as well as uh, some Pennsylvanians, vicinity of Sandy Hollow. As the army was driven back, Nathaniel Green, the apostate Quaker, forms a giant L-shaped ambush. One brigade of Virginians on the left, another brigade of Virginians on the right. As the British crest the hill, they're greeted with a volley of 69 and 75 caliber musket balls and it helps the army withdraw in pretty good order. They again 
The Pennsylvanians get surprised at Paoli. Americans like to talk about it as a massacre. That's nonsense. It's actually a brilliant tactical move by the British. Get over it. Germantown. Washington tries, goes on the offensive. He attacks the British just outside of Philadelphia, drives them back for a while. Sir William, well, he's not yet Sir William, but he's getting there. He rides out, for shame, light bobs, for shame, because this is the light infantry. This is the elite of the British Army, and he'd had a role in forming them in the previous war, the Seven Years' War. They're able to rally and drive the Americans back, in part because Washington's chief of artillery, Colonel Henry Knox, gave him some bad advice. Focus on the Chew House. You don't want the enemy in your rear. Well, bad advice, Henry, but that's okay. Keep in mind, these guys have only been learning how to become officers, how to become colonels and generals, and you name it, for about two years. The Continental Army had only been adopted by the Continental Congress on the 14th of June, 1775. They are learning on the job, and they're learning from some pretty tough schoolmasters, the British Army. We often hear it's the best army in the world. I, I doubt that. I'd say the Prussian army was far, fi far better. But if you want to look at the finest military power writ large, it's got to be the British, because only they can mount overseas expeditions. Uh, nobody really quite has that kind of reach. So they fight these things. And it's amazing, the soldiers still care. They're still part of the fight. The problem is with their officers. And the soldiers recognize this. Still, their morale holds. Eventually, after a lot of marching, and I won't go over all of it, they end up at White Marsh. It's about 15 miles to the east of um, Valley Forge. If you go there, it's a lovely state park. Washington, while he's there, begins to, he conducts a series of councils of war with his generals. What he does is he sends out a letter to the generals, as well as some selected colonels. Here's what we're going to talk about on this date. I want you to respond to me in writing. Washington does this because he wants to know what people are thinking, and he wants to make sure that nobody goes too far to the left or right. Let's keep the conversation focused. You know, generals are want to do that. Colonels are want to do that. Keep it focused. One of the first questions that, that goes on, and I'm not, I won't cover all of the, the series of them, is, hey, should we wage a winter offensive? The British are in Philadelphia. Should we attack Philadelphia? That sounds absolutely bonkers coming from a general whose army has not won a battle in some time. So far in Washington's life, he's had 10 good tactical days. And they, were, they began on Christmas of 1776 and ended less than two weeks later at Princeton. So why would they think about attacking Philadelphia? Well, go back to those 10 days that Washington had. At Trenton, his army had had less experience. 
His officers knew their craft far less well than they did in 1777. This is an army now that's held itself pretty well together. The problem has come from the senior officers. They're still learning the craft, the art of war. So why not give it a try again? And there are discussions. They range from what's going to happen to continental currency? What's going to happen to the reputation of the so-called United States? What about His Excellency's reputation? Oh, and speaking of His Excellency, nothing I say here reflects that, the views of the government, the DOD, or the Army War College. They're strictly mine. I always forget to add that in. I'm just so used to running my mouth. So, Washington asks his generals about this. They come up with a variety of opinions. Eventually, Washington does a personal reconnaissance and he looks at the fortifications of Philadelphia. Those of you who are familiar with Philly, running roughly, and I mean very roughly, around Vine Street, which stretches uh, east to west across the uh, neck of uh, Philadelphia, of the, really, a peninsula, um, are the various British fortifications. You can see all these redoubts here, linking curtain walls, camps behind them. Here's Philadelphia itself. That, by the way, is the location of the Museum of the American Revolution. You can see that right there, the fortifications, museum. Washington rides out, does a personal reconnaissance, and he realizes it ain't worth it. I am not going to risk the most valuable thing that I have, my soldiers' lives, in order to take Philadelphia. Because, and this had also come out in the discussions, what if we succeed, then what? What if we fail, then what? And so they're thinking ahead, trying to think of the next steps. When Washington sees that, he decides, no, we're not gonna do that. We're going to go into winter quarters. The next question is, where do we go? And so he's another series of councils of war. Some of the suggestions come out, hey, you know what, let's settle in Wilmington. <clears throat> Wilmington is pretty attractive. It's nearby Philadelphia. It allows you to keep watch on the British Army. It allows you to challenge the British as they attempt to reestablish rule in um, the, the, the southeastern Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland region. New Jersey, forgive me, I don't want to forget New Jersey. There's a problem, though. The water, and there's several problems. One, the water table is too high. So when you dig, you strike water, you can't build fortifications very well with that. You need more dirt. Two, it's a water-bound cul-de-sac. You've got the Delaware River, and then you've got two other water courses on either side. You don't want to have an army in that because you're trapped. Three, the British have the Royal Navy. And the Royal Navy can make a descent upon you and trap you in that as a column marches overland. Washington decides against that. I mean, it sounds attractive at first, but no thanks. Other officers come out with saying, hey, let's um, maybe set up in Reading. No, that's a little bit too far. Washington understands, he understood rather, just how much 
warfare and political decisions, and all of it fed into one another. He'd been a politician before. He understood the nature of politics. He's learning much, much more about the war. Now, I would argue um, that Washington as a tactician was generally pretty mediocre. As a strategist, however, he's probably one of the best in this war. He gets the big picture. His opponent, General Sir William Howe, superb strategist, he beats Washington every time he comes up against him, but he's never able to destroy the Continental Army. Howe also, I would argue, was a mediocre strategist. He did not quite get the big picture. And so who cares if you've got all this tactical goodness if there's no strategy to actually give it direction or purpose or meaning? Washington understands the significance of strategy, something that evades Sir William Howe. Well, they eventually settle on Valley Forge. They refer to it in the letters as the Great Valley. So it's, as I noted to you, 17 miles away. It's close enough to challenge the British. It's far enough away to be secure. But let's take a look at this from the eyes of, of a military historian, from the eyes of, of a soldier. Look at the fortifications. Notice how they guard all the high-speed avenues of approach, all the major roads that will lead in from the direction of Philadelphia. Look at the rear, the Schuylkill River. The river guards the rear of the of the um, encampment. Here on Mount Joy, you have got more fortifications. Scattered throughout, you've got redoubts. I would suggest to you now to think about it in a term that you've all become acquainted with over the past two decades, the forward operating base. Think of this as FOB Valley Forge. Take a, here's another map. You can get a better idea. Again, these def outer line defenses, inner line defenses, readouts scattered throughout. All of these things form an interlocking defensive network. Each reinforces the other. Taken in sum, these individual elements make the other individual elements stronger than they could be on their own. We can thank Brigadier General Duportail, a French engineer who serves as Washington's chief. He helps lay this out. Finally, one more, because you have to have a topographical map to get an idea of the, the lay of the ground. Those trenches, by the way, um, up here on Mount Joy, on the other side, by the way, that's called Mount Misery, <laughs> but on Mount Joy, they're dug about where I learned you should hold a hillside or a mountain. Um, stuff that I learned f over 40 years ago as a cadet. 
the military crest about three quarters of the way up so that you're not skylighted. I mention that because we as humans often tend to think how quaint they were in the past, those good old days. Things were so much simpler. That's nonsense. Things were complex then, they were difficult, they were challenging, and we build upon them. They teach us whether we recognize it or not. So, next time you go to Valley Forge, and I'd urge you all to go there, eliminate all of the trees. I mean, not literally, please, you'll get in trouble for that one. But eliminate all the trees from the, your fields of vision. Look at the way the ground flows. Get rid of all those ugly buildings that are there. Not at Valley Forge, but surrounding it. This is high ground. Higher the ground, the higher the range of your artillery, the easier you can observe enemy approaching. This, all, this is all rather modern tactical stuff. They've got these readouts. By the way, the ditches in front of these, the reconstructed ones are nowhere near as deep as they would have been in 1777 or 78. They would have been about nine feet deep. And given the uh, rather poor sanitation practices of American soldiers at this time, they would have been filled with filth. I'll let you figure that one out on your own. You can read the orderly books to see the regular orders enjoining soldiers to use the sinks, which was the term for the latrines. But remember, these all tie together. These readouts give you protected firepower. These are strong points. At the base of Mount Joy is the artillery park. There aren't many horses at Valley Forge, so these are probably lighter caliber guns, things that can be wheeled out onto the Grand Parade and used as mobile firepower. So we see here the our two com opposing generals. Well, <clears throat> one of, uh, some of you had brought up uh, starvation. You're absolutely right. One of the challenges that faced the army from 1775 through 1783 was the shambolic, tottering wreck. I see if I can add some more adjectives to it. Um, that we know as the Quartermaster General's Department and the Commissariat. It was staggering toward disaster every day of the week, every week of the year, every year of the war. And who suffered? The soldiers. What's the problem? Well, let's start at the top. Congress, and doing it out of sincere conviction, a fear of military tyranny, enacted a series of rather cumbersome, rather problematic, in retrospect, regulations to prevent the growth of military power through purchasing. You don't just need a bayonet, money can also gain acquiescence. So they enacted a series of complex regulations that I will not go over because I would really put you to sleep. But it affects the soldiers and it really is a pain. In short, one of the things that they have to do is, well, the purchasing agents, the guys who go out to buy the food and the stuff that the army needs, 
they have to actually venture forth their own money or their own credit, not government credit, because the government doesn't have any credit. So they're risking their own names, their own reputations, by venturing forth their own money, their own credit, to purchase on behalf of the army. And sellers are, understandably, kind of nervous about this. Then you have to send your receipts back to Congress, and Congress has to scrutinize them. Then eventually you'll get paid. And what's happening with continental dollars? They're getting more and more worthless by the day. One of the problems is that the Congress does not have the power to tax. The states are reluctant, were reluctant to tax. Taxation actually does work at times, quite often. You can't run a war, you can't have an army unless you tax. Well, they're reluctant to tax, so what does Congress do? It prints more money. What does that do? It creates an inflationary cycle. What does that do? It makes money even more worthless. Who's actually got real money? The British. So by February, Washington writes to William Smallwood, a Marylander who commands a division down at uh, Wilmington, and he tells him really openly, if we don't get food soon, the army's going to disperse, I'm afraid, or it's going to desert. Neither one is a good option. If it disperses, we have to surrender Valley Forge, which means we surrender southeastern Pennsylvania to the enemy. We surrender the supposed writ of the Continental Congress. We surrender what little authority Pennsylvania's government has because the Continentals act as a bulwark and representation of both governments. He decides in February, I'm going to launch a grand forage. And that's basically a term of art from the day. To, uh, it's a large expedition to go out and get everything of use for the army. Go forth like locusts and clean the countryside and bring it back to camp because we need it. Now, at first he was thinking of uh, Anthony Wayne. Wayne's a local boy. He knows the people, knows the ground. This is way too important, though. Washington decides he's going to send his right-hand man, right man. I'm sorry to tell you, fans of Hamilton, it's not Hamilton. It's actually Nathaniel Green. Washington also recognizes, though, his opponent, Howe. He knows that he can take a risk because Howe, to be kind, is rather lethargic, rather diffident. Some might say he's lazy. Uh, truth is, by October, he'd already decided, I quit. And he's been asking Lord George Germain, the colonial secretary back in London, for relief. I don't believe we can win this war. And he gives a variety of other excuses, but Howe has basically quit. He'll do, the, he'll do the minimal work, but he has resigned in his mind. There's an opportunity. There's also a necessity. This has to be done or else the army is going to disappear. It's worth the pay. It's worth the risk. If we succeed, Washington reckons we can hold our position for another few weeks, another few months until the spring comes and we get cattle from New England which was the major cattle raising area in the 18th century. So he assembles his A-team, Nathaniel Green, Anthony Wayne, 
He's also got another arm under Captain Henry Lee and John Barry, who is probably one of the finest officers of the Continental Army. Those of you who, who have been over the, the Commodore Barry Bridge, that's the guy. You're more familiar with um, Henry Lee's son. He surrendered at Appomattox. Henry did not lose a war. I can't say that often enough. Who's he facing? Well, when he sends this expedition out in February, Green has got about 1,400 guys. Um, I've tried to find as many names as humanly possible. I've only been able to find, of course, the general officers, only two, uh, most of the field grade officers, so the colonels, lieutenant colonels, and majors, some of the captains, and very few of the lieutenants. And I think maybe one or two enlisted men, which is a real shame because I want to give voice to these unknown soldiers. They deserve it. Their families deserve it. You will deserve it as Americans. They march out. There's some skirmishing in the vicinity of the 30th Street Station. Uh, no, they're not looking at catching a train. But uh, that's uh, actually the site of a, a readout manned by German troops, Ansbachers. As they head further south, uh, Green is doing what he's supposed to do. He doesn't believe in the mission, but he salutes. He's a good soldier. I will do it, boss. He um, is giving out receipts to farmers uh, that his soldiers impress property from. Go to camp. You can collect this money on that date. Now, you got to imagine, you're a farmer, a property holder, and somebody, a bunch of soldiers come around, and they take your goods. You feel violated. You don't want to see any army. Armies are and were the most tremendous engines of conspicuous consumption and destruction that you can imagine. Even if they're, you're on their side, simply by marching by your property, they are going to destroy the roads. Your orchards are going to be picked clean. Your poultry and cattle and swine will somehow have walked off and joined the army. So you don't want to see soldiers anywhere near you. Green eventually gets tired of people starting to hide goods. And he writes back to Washington, and there's great communication. I've decided that uh, from now on, anybody hiding goods, I'm simply going to seize them. You will get no compensation whatsoever. He even goes so far as uh, to have his soldiers at times take hostages. You will cough up the goods. I hear their cries, and like Pharaoh, I harden my heart, he writes back to Washington. So much for a peace-loving Quaker. On one, in one instance, a couple of uh, civilians were trying to bring goods into Philadelphia. His men captured them. Green didn't give them a court-martial. Instead, he ordered, they will be seized up by their wrists, and they will each receive 100 lashes on their bare backs in a February Pennsylvania day. I'm not fooling around. Green is practicing the hard hand of war. He decides it's time now. I'm going to cut, and I'm going to cut a column loose to cross over into New Jersey. At first, he was thinking of a local boy, Colonel Richard Butler. Those of you who have been to uh, 113 Social, 
that was Butler's, the site of Butler's home, which I think is just really cool. He's a local boy from Carlisle. But as was the case with Green, Green decides this is too important. I'm sending Anthony Wayne. Wayne will cross over the Delaware with the help of John Barry. And he, these two are two guys who seem to be cut from the same cloth. Barry says, yeah, I'll be happy to forward your men over or uh, for, uh, row them over. He's only gonna take about 300, maybe 400 soldiers, not a lot. These soldiers, by the way, uh, represent some of the best armed, best equipped, best uniformed soldiers in the Continental Army. They get to Salem, New Jersey. Um, Wayne had asked Barry, hey, would you do me another favor? Would you set fire to all the marsh hay to distract the British? And look around the room. Every man in this room is at heart a 12-year-old. You give us a box of matches, tell us to set fire to something, and we're going to hop to it. Now, if you can promise us explosives, that's even better. <laughs> yeah, everyone knows that. So, Barry does that. He wants to distract Howe. By the way, what's Howe been doing? Not one thing. The British Army, for the entirety of its occupation of Philadelphia, spent more of its time foraging, looking for food and firewood and other goods, than it did seeking combat. There were difficulties with the British supply system as well. The Brits' uh, rule of thumb was to have six months of supply on hand at all times. That only happened three times during the entire eight years of this war. All of their prepared goods, their uh, the, the thing, uh, biscuit, you name it, coming from depots in southern England and also in Ireland. Figure maybe 60% of those vessels will actually make it to North America. Storms, privateers, um, those take care of the other 40%. Some of them get lost. They don't have GPS. Well, Howe finally reacts, and he sends out the equivalent of a division, two brigades. These guys outnumber Wayne by about eight to one. Now, historians are notoriously bad at mathematics, but even I know that eight is bigger than one. And Howe sends out some pretty good officers, but in the end, they turn out to be the B team. To the north, well, let's start, actually, yeah, to the north, he'll send Colonel Thomas Sterling, who's got two battalions of the 42nd Foot, better known as the Royal Highlanders, the Black Watch. Under him, he's also got Major John Graves Simcoe. And yet again, I have to disappoint some people. If you watch Turn, he's not a homicidal maniac. He's also got, uh, later on, a field officer's guard of about 100 soldiers from the 46th foot under Lieutenant Colonel Enoch Markham. To the south, landing in Salem, Lieutenant Colonel Robert Abercrombie with the elite of the British Army, the Light Infantry Brigade. Commanding on the river, Captain Andrew Snape Hammond of the Royal Navy, a solid officer. What's missing? A general officer to control these two colonels. You need a general to direct these guys, to tell them what to do, to order them what to do, to make sure that they're doing what they're supposed to do. Their mission, and I quote one of Howe's Hessian aides to camp, is to have a slap at Mr. Wayne. They're out seeking combat. Well, let's see here. 
The Brits will land down here in Salem. They'll move towards Swede's Church, um, better known as Raccoon Creek. They nearly bag Anthony Wayne, but he gets out. One of the things that uh, happens here, and the Reverend, the Reverend Nicholas Collin leaves us in his journal. To him, the Continentals look like a bunch of armed ragamuffins, indifferently dressed, but they're well-disciplined, and they behave themselves. This is important because this war was a struggle for people's affections. Most people wanted to just be left alone. Forget this patriotic silliness. They're only a, not everyone was interested in independence. Very few were actually interested in joining the army because you could get killed and it doesn't pay very well. And let's face it, soldiering is really tough in the 18th century. So you want to at least avoid angering people. When the light infantry gets there, now you're looking at proper soldiers. They're uniformed. They're led by gentlemen. Well, the Reverend Colin discovers the average British soldier in his mind seems to be little more than a petty thief. He steals simply because he can. He pilfers simply because he can. If he doesn't have an officer watching him, he will steal from you. Colin comes away with a decidedly negative view of His Majesty's troops. But the light infantry stops in that vicinity. Where's the energy? Why aren't they pursuing Wayne? Wayne's working his way to the northeast. He's also gotten, by the way, some really good intelligence, and I'll show you a little bit of that later. As he gets up toward Cooper's Ferry, modern-day Camden, that's where uh, Sterling's brigade is. Wayne should be trapped, but he's not. He asks for assistance. He asks for, uh, and Casimir Pulaski is ordered to go and assist him. Pulaski, um, he's kind of a problem child of the Continental Army. He's a difficult figure. He writes back to Washington in French. Um, I'm sorry, but uh, cavalry officers do not take orders from infantry officers of equal rank. They're beneath us. Now, as having been a cavalry officer, I can fully understand that. Washington writes him back very politely, telling him to shut up in color. I don't care. This isn't Europe. We don't respect seniority of branch. We respect seniority of rank, date of rank. Anthony Wayne has it. Now get down there and help. And, you know, grudgingly he goes. Well, they get in the vicinity of uh, Haddonfield, which is, oh, we can see it right here, about six miles from Cooper's Ferry. Let me point it out for you. Haddonfield's right there. Blinding snowstorm. If you ask Pulaski a question, his answer is always charge. Good morning, General. Charge. <laughs> However you say that in Polish or French. Well, Pulaski, uh, Wayne wants to see what's going on at Haddonfield because that's as far as Sterling's command has penetrated. Pulaski charges a British outpost. And the British, in short, drop everything that they have begun foraging and leave it for the Americans. Why? Because the British cannot believe that anybody would be mad enough to charge in a snowstorm against a brigade of British infantry 
unless there's a lot of combat power behind them. There wasn't. Luck. Sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. So Wayne, all right, he's a little miffed, I'm sure, with Pulaski, but okay. Let's work our way toward Cooper's Ferry. When he gets there, he sends Colonel Butler out. His troops are forming a skirmish line. Everybody's spread out. We don't want to get hit. We want to see what's happening, develop the situation, get a sense of what the enemy's up to. Pulaski decides, I think now's a good time to charge, and so I shall. Simcoe leaves a, a record in his, his, uh, his memoirs of the war saying that one of his, his uh, officers yelled at Pulaski to turn back or I'll shoot you. Now, I doubt that Pulaski could have heard it because of the distance, and Pulaski didn't speak English, so he didn't understand any of it. Tells him again, maybe a third time, this fellow fires, kills Pulaski's horse. Pulaski is mightily miffed. You shot my horse. The British, though, had been in the, pr in the process of loading barges and galleys to return to Philadelphia. Now it's like, wait a second, we got to fight this. And so artillery gets wheeled off, manhandled by, by, I believe, sailors, and a skirmish ensues. Those of you who are familiar with uh, Camden, there is an abandoned bail bond store, and that's a vicinity of part of the fight. Don't go there unless you've got friends. Uh, also by a water treatment plant, if I recall correctly. The Continentals get pushed back, but eventually the British withdraw. Hey, in Wayne's eyes, in American eyes, this is good news. And so Wayne crows about it. The newspapers that are, that are on the American cause, they crow about it. Hey, we've driven off the North Britain, which is a term for Scotsman. Well, to the, and what's going on to the South? Harry Lee works his way down. And this guy's one of the best light cavalry officers of the war. So what if he got thrown by a horse? It happens to all of us. And he sends Washington back some fabulous reports, tells him about the disaffected. In other words, people who don't want to have anything to do with anybody's army. They don't like any of them. The number of deserters that are hiding by the rivers, the size of the cattle, and he's got other suggestions. Really good stuff. As that's happening, commissary officers are scouting out new locations for supply depots. How do we reestablish the supply depot at Elk? They'll eventually settle on a new one to support it at Charlestown. They're looking at the roads, the wharfs, and also the warehouses that are there. Also, I believe they're probably thinking about the depth of the river, what kind of draft ships can get here. Charlestown's the best place. Now, we often think that the Royal Navy's got the advantage, and in some ways it does. Um, Captain uh, Hammond's frigate, Roebuck, has more firepower than the entire Continental Army. But take a look, and it's kind of hard to make out, but take a look at the shipping channels. The deep water hugs the New Jersey side of the Delaware River. Take a look at the river current. How fast can a frigate go? Close hauled meaning exposing every inch of sail to the wind that is possible. 
draws 16 feet of water. This is a miserable place to take a warship. And as you can see, Captain Hammond writes, I don't know of any river so difficult of navigation. That's his uh, parliamentary testimony in 1779. Everywhere that he goes, he tells Parliament, I am within range of American artillery. He can't maneuver his bigger ship. And a frigate, pretty good sized, you know, in these waters. But Roebuck can't stand in line of battle. At minimum, you need something with 60 guns, ideally 72, ideally 80. Roebuck's a scouting, a cruising warship. She's not meant to stand in a big line of battle. She will do better in open seas, just like the rest of them. So this is a, a problem for the British. It limits their ability to maximize their maneuverability on the water. What's it take to feed this army at Valley Forge? By the way, don't, uh, when you see these numbers, the number of rations do not equate to the number of mouths. Officers, depending on their rank, receive more rations. If you're a senior officer, a general, colonel, for example, one of the things you're expected to do, and this is part of the culture, is you're expected to host junior officers to dinner, host them to table. That's part of their education, learning how to be an officer, learning how to comport yourself. This is part of how it's done in the 18th century. But you can see, this is a tremendous machine. It is voracious. Here's what it needs to feed itself. By the way, there are only eight wagons in camp. It needs 113 per day. The army was literally starving amidst a land of plenty. That'll tell you average, oops. You can tell I'm not all that qualified with technology. But right here, off to the right, you can see the average size of farms, horses, what swine, sheep, and cattle come out to dressed, in other words, prepared in the slaughtering season, which is starting about now, going into November. There's what they can haul. They can't get wagons. Pennsylvania militiamen were unwilling to serve because of the lousy pay and because, frankly, you're taking me away from my job, supporting my family. Contractors, by the way, were regularly dumping supplies over the road, siphoning off pickling brine. Um, they found, I forget how much equipment stored in farmers' barns along the major routes approaching Valley Forge. Very little control of property. The contractors not doing their jobs in many cases. What's it take to feed the animals? And keep in mind, everything that goes in has got to come out. One of the things that they encounter, and you, there's a re there are <clears throat> letters of this, takes place in Smallwood's Brigade, and they begin to slaughter fresh cattle. It's like, finally, we have fresh beef. Eating this salted stuff is just nasty. And 
it appears, though, that the cattle were actually dying on the hoof. They had a wasting disease that sounds like it was render pest. And so you can read that. As they were slaughtered, the carcasses were thrown into the Delaware River. They were unfit for human consumption. I talked to you a little bit about the um, intelligence network. Uh, I, when I was at the Connecticut Historical Society, came across two notes about the size of three by five cards written in very faint pencil from Anthony Wayne to Captain Theodore Woodbridge of the 7th Connecticut. And these really touched me. They're just simple things. Who has what? Go get them. I don't know if Woodbridge's family, if the family line continues, I, I think it does. But I see part of my duty to the past, to these past actors, is telling their stories as best I can. And so the fact that I could bring one captain's name back to the public, to me, meant a lot. Just these two small, Handwritten notes from General Wayne to Captain Woodbridge. Something else that really spoke to me is this account book. I was desperately looking for an account book. Tell me how much stuff they got. I couldn't find one for Green's column. And he's got like 1,400 guys under his command. If it's out there, it, somebody has it and hasn't coughed it up. Wayne's column, same story. Finally, I go across the river to the uh, Gloucester County Historical Society in New Jersey. And I'm going through the uh, Howell family collection, five boxes. Box one, nothing. Two, nothing. Three, nothing. Four, nothing. It's like, great. Insert whatever expletive you want. I said it. Um, box five. Account of cattle and provisions collected by the party under the command of Captain Henry Lee. Holy, and you can figure that one out for yourselves. Yeah, I did say it. And I came across the account book covering every place that Henry Lee's troop of light dragoons, that's 5th Troop, 1st Continental Light Dragoons, as well as Delaware militiamen, every place they visited, all the cattle, the horses, how many hands high the horses were, how much the stuff was valued at. This is a gold mine. Finally, I found one account book. I also found something that speaks to the nature of our collective American revolution, our collective American war for independence. I don't know about the rest of you, my family had nothing whatsoever to do with this war for independence or revolution. My family was busy stealing land in California and northern Mexico and Texas. So I'm descended from the original thieves of what is today the American Southwest. We often look at the American Revolution and many past wars through these gauzy, romantic veils. All were noble. These are human beings endowed with everything as good, bad, and indifferent as the rest of us. Human nature never changes. 
Well, I came across Negro Joseph, Negro Sam, Negro Henry, Negro Jack, Negro Daniel, Negro Cuff. These are the unfree, the enslaved, serving their masters unwillingly, unpaid, on behalf of white political independence. That's not make, meant to make anybody feel bad, but history is uncomfortable and it should be. This tells us, just this little page here, I think quite a bit about the messy, complex, and often uncomfortable nature of our collective experience as Americans. We study history to understand who and what and why and how we are because of who and what and why and how we were. Good, bad, indifferent, glorious, you name it. It's part of the human experience. It's part of our collective experience as Americans. And it's something that we should seek to understand and learn more about because it's our collective story as a people. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. Okay, uh, we will now have about 20 minutes or so for a question and answer session. Uh, so anybody uh, has anything, just please raise your hand and Doug will bring the microphone over to you uh, so that folks out in internet land can hear. Thank you, sir. Uh, Sean Schultz. Um, I want to ask, it would seem to me that the tactic would be to, to try and attack, if they were sending out foraging parties, to try and attack the, the other side's foraging parties in order to limit their operations. Was any of that done? That's a great question. Um, you would think that. And in fact, if we, we back it up to the year before, after the, after the, uh, the, the, bat, the uh, two battles at Trenton and the Battle of Trenton, Trent, uh, Princeton, forgive me, I'm mixing up my names, you get the collapse of British lines. They fall back essentially to, to New York. Those that are still in New Jersey, they don't dare venture forth in anything smaller than about brigade strength, so two or more battalions together. Why? Because the New Jersey militia and the Pennsylvania militia, often mixed with Continentals, are attacking their columns. You see in the, during the occupation of Philadelphia, one of the things the British have to do is, um, or was, clear the Delaware River. If you go, those of you who have been to Philadelphia International Airport, you look at Fort Mifflin, which is now surround, it's now part of the airport. That had been Mud Island. There are remnants of it though that date to the, the War for Independence and before. There was an American fort there. It tied in with a fort on the Jersey side Fort uh, Mercer across the river uh, in Red Bank. There were also cheval de foyers. In other words, these, uh, these were logs, essentially, with iron spikes embedded in stone cribs in the river bottom, aiming downriver, meant to tear the bottoms out of British ships. 
So the British had to clear these obstacles until they could clear the river obstacles and reduce the American forts on either side. They had to offload everything in Chester, about 15 miles south, march it overland. Guess what was happening to those columns? They were being attacked by Americans. So they have to send out brigades to escort the trains from Chester into Philadelphia. Now, when the, uh, the Grand Forge takes place, while the regulars don't do much, you will see loyalists like Hovenden's uh, Philadelphia Light Dragoons. They surge into the, the countryside between Philadelphia and Valley Forge and begin not so much attacking foragers, although that, there was low-scale skirmishing going on all the time. They go after Whig families, so those who were loyal and supported the American cause. They attack them to terrorize them and intimidate them. So you do see something going on there. But how, do, uh, surprisingly, he's got a chance to, to attack a major portion of the Continental Army while it's outside of its fortifications. He's smart enough to know not to attack them in Valley Forge. That's dangerous. Just like Washington, Howe's most precious commodities are his soldiers, and he cannot afford to waste their lives. So he does no basically nothing until Wayne crosses into New Jersey. As you were doing your research, was there anything in particular that surprised you, something that you weren't expecting? Uh, that account, finding that account book certainly was, because I, finally I find something. Um, for me, it was, a, it was a process really of, of discovery. This had begun initially as a staff ride. When I was back on the staff ride team, began building it in 2010, and I saw, okay, there's enough material here well, when we get to Valley Forge, let me back it up. Staff rides are about movement. Valley Forge, you have to do it if you're doing the Philadelphia campaign, but Valley Forge is largely static. And so as I dug in and rethought it, I asked myself, how can I put some movement back into this place? And so I recalled some stuff that I had read in Wayne Bodle's uh, really masterful work, the best scholarly work on Valley Forge, uh, Valley Forge Winter recalled him writing about the foraging expedition, and I built a stand off of that. So how do, I, how do we spend an hour here, talk about supplying the army, all of those important things? And then an article, another article, eventually a third one, that means a book. But it was that whole process was one of discovery and then reconceptualizing Valley Forge um, in, in a blinding flash of the obvious. This is the, the, the 18th century forerunner to the 21st century FOB. This was the home of an active field army doing the stuff that, active sol that soldiers understand today, that my students here at the War College have done for their careers. They go out on patrol. They look for the enemy. They go searching for, for contact. They search for intelligence. They go out to take, to take care of the roads and communications and more. And that's what their forebears were doing in 1777 and 1778 from FOB Valley Forge. So all of this process really opened it up to me, sir. Let me uh, just ask one question uh, from our uh, chat here. Uh, Rick, the question is, uh, with the number of war college students we have attending, 
What can we learn from strategic leadership, uh, particularly Washington and Green, in improvising to feed and supply the Army on this campaign? Oh, there's, there's so much. Um, Washington was dealing with not just the, the various committees or delegates from the Continental Congress. He's also writing to the president of the Continental Congress. By the way, the son of the president of the Continental Congress is one of his aides de camp. Luckily, he's a competent officer. It's John Lawrence who's serving under Washington. Henry Lawrence is the president. He's also dealing with the various states' governors, even if they're not immediately adjacent to the, where the army's operating. Washington's writing to the governor of Maryland, telling him, I'm going to send an officer, a senior officer of your line down there with money. We need supplies. So Washington is dealing with politicians of varying rank. While they were at uh, White Marsh, there had been a congressional delegation uh, headed by Elbridge Gerry. Those of you who are familiar with the term gerrymandering, it's actually gerrymandering, comes from this fellow. Well, Gerry leads this, this delegation, and he writes, not quite in the way I'm going to put it to you, I'm going to put a boot up Washington's hind to make him get this army in motion. Gerry is really full of himself, was really full of himself. He goes there, he sees the army, sees the condition it's in, he sees the spirit that it has. He comes to the realization, yeah, maybe a winter campaign's not the best thing to do right now. Maybe there's really nothing that could be gained from this. So Washington has got to work with politicians and handle them and take care of their needs, get them to understand the situation according to the way that he wants to present it so that he can preserve the army. Washington realizes that one of the things that will help him help Americans win this war is by avoiding losing. If the army stays together, the revolution continues. It's a hard core around which American resistance can form. We avoid losing, we hang on long enough, and please, please, please get the French in on this war openly. We've got a real chance at not losing this war and gaining our independence. Washington realized all of these things. So he gets the, the high, at the highest levels of politics, international uh, diplomacy. He understands military strategy. Green, later on when he goes to the Southern campaign, Green never wins a battle, but he wins a campaign. Who cares if you win lots of battles, if you can't win the big picture stuff? Look at the German army, no offense to my German friends. Germany's 0-2 in the only World Cup that counts. Won lots of battles, never won a war in its history. Prussia did, but not Germany as a country. You've got to focus on the big picture stuff in order to give meaning and organization and power and all these other things to the lower level things at the tactical level. Just Rick's opinion. Yes, sir. Carl Matthias Rock, uh, I'm international fellow here at the U.S. Army War College. And I've just offended you. This is good. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm doing and I, well. And I'm a German. So, uh, <laughs> my, my, my question is, uh, looking at early modern history, military history, yes. uh, I think logistic is uh, an underestimated topic. Absolutely, Matthias. And uh, I think, or I know, that a lot of the logistic was in private hands, especially in the 15th, 16th, and 17th century. And 
that brings me to the question, what did you find in your sources about camp followers, about mm -hmm. the female supporters of the soldiers? Did you find them something? Mm -hmm. And how did they treat them in Valley Forge? Sure. And, 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 that, and that's a really good question. You're really looking at the, commun the army community, if you will. Uh, Holly Mayer, who has previously been the, the uh, Harold K. Johnson Chair of Military History uh, here at the Army War College, and, and a, a dear friend, she has written about the army as a community, looking at camp followers and sutlers. They play an important supporting role in terms of their ability to bring in tonnage I just don't see any, I have not come across anything that speaks to large quantities of supplies. Helping out individual soldiers, those to whom they're related, married to, that's the case. Serving, uh, helping nurse or mend um, clothes, uh, cooking, washing, all those support pieces, absolutely. But in terms of bringing supplies, they have to have wagons, they have to have horses or oxen, and they, they aren't getting it. If the Continentals aren't getting it, um, how are the camp followers getting it? And so I, I, th I think that yes, while they're important, we sometimes over-romanticize them, but you're absolutely right about the pri being in private hands and the nature of early modern logistics. I mean, uh, it, it's not until I think the, uh, the late 18th, early 19th century that artillery drivers actually are made soldiers. Until then, they'd been civilian contractors who are paid to do this. How do you control civilians when they come under fire? With great difficulty is the answer, which is something that Washington and, and, and all of the Continentals discovered with the, the contractors bringing supplies forward. The amount of stuff that they dumped overboard, they're supposed to make 10 miles per day. They're supposed to, at the end of the day, cut fresh forage for their draft animals what happens is that they tend to stop at every tavern and route. They go to sleep early. They don't make their 10 miles. They cut all the fresh stuff in the morning. Consequently, they get very late starts, and they make even less mileage the next day. To lighten their loads, they dump barrels, throw supplies overboard, hand them over to friendly farmers. So again, very little control over this stuff, and it takes a while for them to learn. Um, every once in a while, the continental uh, logistical system works, but that happens to be the exception throughout much of the war. And you see this repeatedly throughout the records of the Continental Army, how, how they are staggering from one crisis to near crisis um, as, as the war goes on. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for attending. All right, and a few closing announcements. Uh, so first and foremost, thank you all uh, for attending tonight, uh, and we look forward to future events. Our Fall of Perspectives lecture series continues monthly through November, uh, so that leaves one more. Uh, Wednesday, November 15th at 6.30, Dr. Adam McGlynn from East Stroudsburg University will speak on Latino military service to our nation. 
Um, and to assist us with planning the 2024 lecture series, we'd really appreciate any feedback you might provide about this event or any others that you have attended throughout um, the year. So um, there ought to be uh, brief surveys uh, placed in the back of the room. Uh, Doug and Dave uh, have those as well as pens uh, if you need them. Um, one additional event, uh, major event forthcoming in November on Veterans Day, Saturday, November 11th uh, at 1100. Uh, the Army War College will commemorate Veterans Day in a ceremony here at USA HEC. Um, also immediately after our program, Dr. Herrera will be at a table uh, outside here. Um, so uh, copies of his book will be on sale. He'll be available to sign, uh, as well as any additional comment or comments or questions that you may have. Um, so one final announcement, uh, please just be sure to check out our webpage um, for all other events and activities going on. And once again, uh, thank you for attending tonight. Everyone have a safe trip home. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our lecture. The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center at Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania, USA is an integral part of the U.S. Army War College and maintains the knowledge repositories that support scholarship and research about the U.S. Army and its operating environment. To learn more about the Army's history or to plan a visit to our center, please visit us online at www.usahec.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube to learn more about past and upcoming events.